Welcome to the Life Christian Church Podcast, where our mission is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them as we spread His love in ever-widening circles. If we haven't met, my name's Terry Smith. I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here at the Life Christian Church. And uh, again, we're so glad you're here. Uh, If we haven't met, I hope to have an opportunity to meet you before the day is over. Now, as most of you know, uh, I'm going to spend the next 40 or so minutes doing a teaching that I hope will impact your life, believe will impact your life in powerful ways. And today, particularly, we are finishing the series that we have been in now for a number of weeks since Easter, in fact, um, about uh, how that our faith is based on the eyewitnesses of the eyewitness testimony of those who lived contemporaneous with the events surrounding the crucifixion, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, the launch of the Christian church based on all of that. And I uh, today want to offer my final teaching for now on this. So since uh, Easter Sunday, we have been discussing how that these eyewitness accounts form the basis of our faith in Jesus, and particularly how that these eyewitness accounts from 2,000 years ago have brought us to a place where we can say, I witness to who Jesus is and the truth of what Scripture says about Him. It's not just that they witnessed it, but I witness it. I witness His power, His presence uh, in my life as well. But uh, the faith of those first eyewitnesses doesn't mean that there weren't skeptics then, because there were. And uh, our faith today doesn't mean that there aren't skeptics now, or that at times most of us don't deal with doubt, because the reality this is, is that this is part of what it means to be human. The most famous skeptic in history was a resurrection skeptic. This skeptic is typically called Doubting Thomas. And the uh, nomenclature Doubting Thomas has become synonymous with skepticism in in our vernacular. When someone speaks about a Doubting Thomas, we know that that relates to the skepticism of this disciple of Jesus named Thomas. And I think ultimately, as I'll say here in a few moments, unfairly called Thomas doubting Thomas. So let's locate ourselves in the story from the gospel where this comes from. Jesus had been raised from the dead. His disciples were meeting in an, in, a, in a locked room because they were afraid that those who had killed Jesus were going to come after them. And here's what John says, when it was evening on that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked. Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, peace be with you. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side, so the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. But Thomas, called twin, some translations will use the Greek word here, Didymus, Thomas called Didymus, which translated means twin. Thomas called twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, if I don't see, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, 
put my finger into the mark of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. A week later, his disciples were indoors again, and indoors again, and Thomas was with them this time. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas responded to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. Now, everything about this story is amazing. And there are a lot of things that we could dig into here. I'll just mention a couple things and then land on where I want to spend, at least set up what I want to talk about today. But uh, some of the things that come to my mind as I read this story from the Gospel of John is, uh, uh, is, let's say, that you never know what you're going to miss when you miss Sunday services in church. Here these disciples were immediately after the resurrection of Jesus, and they were meeting together on the first day of the week. They're meeting together on the first day of the week because Jesus was raised on the first day of the week, and this is, of course, why uh, Sunday has become the Christian Sabbath. And they're meeting on the first day of the week, and Thomas isn't there, and look what he misses. He misses the first appearance of the resurrected Jesus to his disciples. And so you never know what you're going to miss when you miss being with all of us on the first day of the week. That's really a minor point, but I had to get that one in. Thomas, it strikes me then, as I just kind of tick off a few things that interest me in the story, it strikes me then that Thomas was skeptical of the disciples' eyewitness to the resurrection appearance of Jesus the week before he saw him, even though he personally knew these people who were telling him that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Not only that, but he personally knew Jesus and was still skeptical even though he personally knew Jesus. It reminds me that the depths of human skepticism knows no end. I think one way to talk about Thomas in this context and in the rest of his story is that he was human. He was human. And part of being human means that sometimes you wrestle with doubt especially when you're dealing with something as phenomenal as the most phenomenal thing that ever happened in human history was Jesus Christ being crucified and then having been raised from the dead. I like the title almost as much as the painting of... I've never had trouble saying this in my life, but this particular crowd has made me nervous. Caravaggio's The Incredulity of Thomas. I love this title, Thomas is incredulous. But in response to Thomas's incredulity, or in response to his skepticism, Jesus isn't offended, but rather he meets him where he is. I mean, this is really, I think, important for us to know. Jesus doesn't, you know, get angry and shout at Thomas. He shows up. And he says, Thomas, if this is really what you need to be able to believe well, here it is. Here are my hands. Here is the, the scar in my side. Reach out and touch it. I think that Jesus finds a way to make himself real to people who sincerely ask him to. He's not upset 
at you because you have questions, because you wonder, because um, you're inquiring, because you wrestle with doubt or skepticism. He wants to reveal himself to you. But then once Jesus reveals himself to Thomas, once you know there's irrefutable evidence that he's in fact been raised bodily from the dead, he demands that Thomas take the next step. Now it's decision time for Thomas. And Tom, so he says to Thomas, he says, don't be faithless, but believe, or as one translation has it, stop being an unbeliever, be a believer. I just love this. Jesus is standing there making himself known to Thomas, but now says, now that you know, you have to make a choice, stop being an unbeliever, be a believer. And then Thomas responded the only way a sensible could under these circumstances. He confessed his faith and declared that Jesus was his Lord and God. This is the most escalated confession of the deity of Jesus in the Gospels. Thomas standing there looking at Jesus and calling him his Lord and his God. Doubting Thomas was now an eyewitness to the resurrection. What could he possibly do but believe and declare that Jesus was Lord and God? Or as Frederick Dale Bruner translates this, Thomas responded and said to Jesus, you are the Lord of me and the God of me. I love the way that that gets personalized there. You are the Lord, not just in some universal sense, you are the Lord of me. And I have a feeling that I'm going to return to that text and that translation probably in a series that I'm going to do this coming fall about what it means for Jesus to be the Lord of me. Thomas says he is the Lord of me and the God of me. And then as this story closes, Jesus then spoke about all of us when he said to Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's us. The fact is that as far as we know, since the, uh, the, the appearance of Jesus bodily to the Apostle Paul some five years after the ascension, which was a, um, uh, an, 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 an abnormal, an, uh, some, something that didn't typically happen, an outlier to say the least, since that time Jesus has not been bodily appearing to people as the resurrected Jesus. He ascended to heaven, that's where, that's where he's at. So we haven't seen him bodily resurrected, and Jesus said, the greater blessing is of the person who hasn't seen but yet believes. That's us. We are asked to believe based on the witness of others, the witness of Scripture, the witness of history, the inner witness of the Holy Spirit which speaks in our hearts, which causes us to say, I may not have seen him, but I witness him. I may not have been an eyewitness, but I am a witness because I know Jesus lives. I've confessed my faith. He is my Lord and my God. I feel his presence in my life. I've seen his activity. I know he's leading and guiding me. I witness. We see it not because of what we saw. We see it because of what they saw and told us and which now has been made real in our lives by the presence of the Holy Spirit. But having said all of that, here's what I want to focus on for a minute. I want to focus on the fact that Thomas was not called doubting in Scripture. In fact, it's a little offensive to me that that's 
how Thomas has come to be known. It's not really fair. I hate this thing when some, someone finds the worst thing they can find about someone, and that's how they're identified from that point forward. Here Thomas is doubting Thomas on the basis of this particular story. The, the fact is, he's not called doubting in the New Testament. He's called twin. His nickname is twin, which is going to give us a little bit more of a nuanced picture on who Thomas was. John 20, 24, now Thomas, one of the 12, nicknamed twin, wasn't with them when Jesus came. The Greek word here, and some of your uh, 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 English translations will use it, is the word didymus. It means twin, or some uh, translators say it's more accurate, actually, to translate this word as double-minded. This gives us a little bit more of a picture of Thomas. He is double-minded minded. He is both doubting and believing. I love uh, something I read about this. Actually, a couple years ago on my study intensive, I was studying the marvelous commentary on the Gospel of John by Frederick Dale Bruner. And I read this, and I've kind of been holding on to this until it seemed like the right time to teach about it for the last couple of years. He says something simple, but I think it's profound. He, he writes, Thomas's nickname, the twin, was seen by several interpreters, and he names them, as an allusion to the fact that Thomas carried in himself two men, a believer and an unbeliever, a Jacob and an Esau. He was a two-souled man. And then Bruner says, in this sense, however, are not all believers twins? And I think the answer to that question is, yes, if we're honest. The fact is, all of us are a mixture of things and, and also deal with both doubt and faith, and oftentimes have to work our way through doubt to come to faith. And the point is, I think that's okay. This moves me how Bruner says this relates. Thomas, the twin, relates to all of us. Are we not all twins? And of course, my theologically astute mind immediately got a picture in my mind from the movie poster for the movie Twins. Schwarzenegger and DeVito as opposite. That's the hint for the folks to put that on the screen. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, Schwarzenegger and DeVito, polar opposites, obviously unidentical twins, which probably isn't the technical way that you're supposed to say it. The fact is within us, there are strong opposites that sometimes are combating with one another, and this was true for Thomas. Thomas had a lot of things going on, not just doubt. It was just part of the story. So let's just talk about some things we know from Scripture about Thomas. It gives us more of a nuanced view of who, who he is. Doubting Thomas was, on one hand, courageous. Though maybe in this story a little sarcastic and fatalistic, Jesus is talking to Mary, he's talking to his disciples about the fact that his friend Lazarus has died and that Jesus had been waiting until he died so he could go raise him from the dead. But he, in saying this, 
tells his disciples that they're going to travel to Bethany where there's basically been a contract put out on the life of Jesus. And they know that there are people waiting to kill Jesus there and they're being very, very close to Jerusalem uh, within eyesight of Jerusalem uh, as Bethany was sitting up there uh, just over the Mount of Olives. Um, so so this is what, what happens. John 11, so Jesus told his disciples plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe but let's go to him. Then Thomas, called twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too so that we may die with him. So Thomas says, we understand there's danger. We're with you. And if they're going to kill you, they're going to kill us too. Now, let me just ask a question. I know that there will be some people who can raise your hands to this, but I'm just let me, let me put it like this. How many of you did not know that part of the Thomas story that Thomas said, I'm going to go with you. If they're going to kill you, they're going to kill me too. How many of you did not know that part of the Thomas story? Almost everybody in the room didn't know that part of the Thomas story. Why do we tell the Thomas doubting story and never tell this part of the story? We'll die with you too. Thomas was also sincere. He was a sincere guy. He was thoughtful and willing to ask difficult questions. At the Last Supper, Jesus is sitting there uh, talking, uh, uh, doing a, basically a sermon, a talk to these guys who are going to lead the church after uh, he ascends to heaven. And this, 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 this uh, teaching goes on for several chapters in John. Part of it is Jesus says, I'm going away. I'm going to prepare a place for you so that when I go, you can follow me there. And I'll pick it up, John chapter 14, verse 3. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. And then Jesus says to his disciples, you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? To which Jesus says, I mean, this is fascinating, okay? It's a Passover meal. There are four glasses of wine in. It's a Passover meal. Sorry, but they were. And, and if they observed it like every other Jew in history has ever observed the Passover meal, and Jesus is sitting there saying, you know the way we're going, and can you imagine John, Thomas raises his hand and said, no, we don't. We don't know where you're going. Where, where, where are you going? To which Jesus responds famously, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. One of the most famous things Jesus says about himself, I am the way, the truth, the life, he says in response to a question from Thomas who sincerely just says, um, uh, I know you think you explained this, teacher, but we have no idea where you're going. This is another part of who Thomas is. Now, was Thomas doubting? Yeah, he also was doubting. Post-resurrection, we read the story, I won't believe unless I can see him and touch him with my own eyes and hands. But ultimately, Thomas was believing. I mean, the, the real story about Thomas was that he confesses his faith, he makes Jesus his Lord and his God personally, and he goes on, What part of what we know about Thomas from tradition and what we do know of history in that era is that Thomas went on, took the gospel of Jesus Christ all the way from Jerusalem to India. He's the first one to preach about Jesus in India, and uh, his grave is there today. In fact, he ended up being martyred for his faith. Who, I mean, if I ask for a raise of hands on that, the fact 
fact is most people would not be aware of that detail. So was Thomas doubting? Yes, he had some doubt. He was also courageous. He was also sincere. Ultimately, it shouldn't be doubting Thomas. It should be believer Thomas, missionary Thomas, great man Thomas, martyr for the faith Thomas. Thomas was a believer. Let's just say it like this, though. Thomas was human. He was a mix, again, of a lot of things. He was a twin, if you please, but ultimately in Thomas, the good twin won because Thomas became a believer. Now, um, this is incredibly important that to understand that we are a mix of at least two polar opposite forces. That even, and I repeat myself, the strongest believer sometimes deals with doubt. And even the strongest skeptic will at times say, I hear skeptics say this frequently, I wish I could believe. And this reality plays out in our lives in many ways. And my, my prayer for each of us is that the faith twin wins. And it should. It should. Because when all is said and done, in our own eyewitness way, we are faced with irrefutable evidence that what the first eyewitnesses said about Jesus is actually true. And that we have every reason to believe and that when we are faced with the reasons that are abundant to believe that we come to a point of decision as well where we must decide to believe, to confess our faith, and to serve Jesus. So I want to spend the rest of my time today offering reasons why we should believe, why doubt should be overcome with faith, how the faith twin should win, how that when we do, when we do begin to see the reasons for our faith in Jesus and specifically the resurrection, there is really no other reasonable response other than to say, Jesus is my Lord and my God. So let's just I'm going to spend the next few minutes doing a very brief apologetic, okay, is what it's technically called. I'm just going to talk, just offer one little slice of the kinds of reasons that we have to believe until the faith twin wins, where we are not doubting Joe or Jim or Jill or, or Susanna or uh, Yamade or uh, whoever, but, but we become known as the believer after, before our name, that this is the qualifier that's attached to us. So some reasons for faith to win. Let's talk about the fact that the Gospels, were written within 40 to 60 years after the resurrection of Jesus and were written based on eyewitness accounts. It's a very simple thing, but it's very important. The best scholarship shows that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that are part of our canon, part of our New Testament, begin the New Testament, tell the stories of Jesus, were written based on eyewitness accounts. Those who wrote them were, actually saw the things that they write about, or they knew very well and had investigated the accounts of those who were eyewitnesses of the events at hand. And, um, and this is why it's, it's really cool that uh, in, these eyewit in, these, in the Gospels that there are people who are named who, as, as the, the Gospel accounts are, are written, 
are being read, I'm sorry, the people reading them, in the, in those early Christians or those who were considering becoming Christians, could actually go find people named who saw the things being talked about to ask if they were true. So as you read through the Gospels, you find name after name after name after name, someone who can verify everything that's written about, including and especially the crucifixion and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, here are the named people you can go speak to. I mean, this wasn't said exactly like that, but here, here's somebody, here's their name. And in fact, we'll not only give you their name, we'll give you their first name, their last name, who their dad was, the town they're from. You don't believe what we're saying. Here is someone who can tell you that what we're saying is true. And they didn't just name the names of friends or believers. They also named the names of enemies, even people who had animosity towards Jesus, and we would have reason to believe towards Christians. They, they laid it all out there. This is what we saw, or this is what was reported, and we've investigated, and, and th this is what was seen, and here are all these details. You can go check out whether or not this is true. Remember, Christianity started among people who lived contemporaneous to the events that took place in the life of Jesus and uh, the, the life of the early Christian church. Here's how Luke, for instance, begins his gospel. He writes, many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. So it also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the first to write to you in an orderly sequence. Luke, by the way, is considered by some historians to be the greatest historian who ever lived. He didn't say, hey, here's something I heard about or I hope is true or whatever. He said, this is what the eyewitnesses said. I went and investigated all of these things, and now I'm going to write. He writes to his patron, whose name was Theophilus. I'm going to write to you an orderly sequence of all the things that happened. This was the approach. See, some people think that when you become a, a believer that you put your brain in the offering plate. It's like you, you, you're not allowed to think, you're not allowed to ask, you're not allowed to inquire, you're not allowed to investigate. This is the opposite of what is true. In fact, guys, it's important that we do. This is the most, if, if this is true, if, if what we're told about Jesus is true, it is clearly the most important fact in the history of the universe. So digging in is important for us to establish that well, this is what we are supposed to, according to teachings of Scripture, actually base our lives on. Secondly, the Gospels were written to honestly to be legend. Again, there are so many things that could be said. I'm just pulling a few out that, that came to me this week as I was working on this message. The Gospels are written to honestly to be legend. So let's just say, for instance, if, if those who wrote the Gospels were making it up there are certain things that they would not have said in the first century. Let's say, for instance, that um, uh, they, they, they wouldn't have someone who's trying to create a hero story, which they're doing around, they're calling Jesus the Savior of the world, would not have had him dying on a cross because 
this was an association with the worst kind of criminal uh, in that era. You, you, that, you just, that's not something that you would make up if it didn't happen. Or let's, uh, let's say uh, something that comes up every once in a while around here because uh, I'm fascinated with the way Jesus created um, uh, an environment for equal rights to to occur between men and women. And, and so just a, lot, a few weeks ago, it seems like I was talking about this, how that women uh, were a part of, of the leadership team of Jesus' ministry, if you play, please, in a way that was unheard of at that time uh, with the way that women were treated, uh, extreme patriarchy. And one thing that was true about women in the first century is they were not allowed to be witnesses in a court of law. Now, obviously, that's not right. It's not how it should have been, but that's the way it was at that time in history and in that place, and for the most part, uh, around everywhere during that time. But Jesus has women as the first witnesses to his resurrection. So the, the people who had to have the most credibility as to what they saw were people who, in a court of law, couldn't have stood up and given witness. I'm simply saying that if you're a guy named Luke or Mark or Matthew or John, and you're making a story up about the resurrection, you wouldn't have Mary Magdalene as the first person to witness the resurrection. And then the other women, they were all initially women, who then went and told the guys what they had seen in terms of the empty tomb and finally Jesus showing up and peering to... to uh, 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 um, to uh, Mary Magdalene. You, that, that's not how you would have told a story. Or let's use one other example in, in, in this regard. Look at the way that the gospel writers write about themselves and the way that they write about the other players, their friends, their ministry partners, in the gospel stories. For instance, let's say um, Mark in his gospel uh, has some pretty scathing accounts of the apostle Peter who was uh, not only uh, Mark's friend, but it appears his mentor. And Mark writes some things about Peter that you would never write about a friend, you know, because Peter said some ridiculous things. He, he did some ridiculous things. He ultimately wimps out of the crucifixion. They all do, but he does it in a way that really makes him stand out. And, 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 and he's, he's proven in the, you know, the way the gospels end pretty much is, 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 is Peter ends up being a coward, right? I mean, that's not how we think of him today, thank God, but that this is the account of the gospel. Well, I, you just can't imagine Mark sitting down and writing a story and saying, and this is how I'm going to to portray my friend Peter. Oh, by the way, my ex-friend Peter. Uh, that's just not the way you, you would talk about things. Let's, all, let's talk about the way that the Gospels include so much detail. In fact, they include so much detail that uh, it's hard to believe that they are legends. So um, C.S. Lewis, the famous uh, uh, skeptic, uh, atheist, agnostic who became a believer who uh, then became one of the great Christian apologists in history, the Cambridge professor, the, the novelist. He was an expert, one of the leading experts in the world on all types of literature. And when C.S. Lewis was uh, a skeptic, he started reading the Gospels and because of his knowledge of, of history, he knew that fiction during the first century, in fact, 
more information than you need, but, but until the last 300 years or so, was not detailed in an attempt to tell a story. So when someone in the first century, when the Gospels were written, would write fiction, they would not share detail because they felt like it took away from the story. This is actually one of the things that led C.S. Lewis to come to, to faith, was noticing that this was not written like any other fiction in the first century because of the level of detail that was mentioned. How many fish did you catch, uh, 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 Peter and John, when Jesus joined you on the boat after the resurrection 153 fish why would you say you caught 153 fish unless you counted 153 fish uh jesus is sleeping on the boat uh when the storm comes when he stood up and he calmed the wind and the waves but it says that when he was sleeping he was sleeping on a cushion uh that kind of detail and you can study this for yourself that kind of detail was not mentioned when people wrote fiction and c.s lewis is reading this saying that this does not read like any fiction that had ever been written or has been written until the last 300 years or so, and this was one of many things that, that nudged him over the line to faith. Something else I would mention is the historicity of Jesus and the events in the Gospels are established by multiple sources. You may or may not be aware of this, but you know there are real questions whether or not some of the great personages of history actually existed. Like, let's say, Homer, the writer of the Odyssey and the Iliad. Or, um, let's say, Socrates. Um, most of you would know this from just a cursory reading about Socrates in, in, in your time in college, or maybe even in high school, that there's some question as to whether or not Socrates, who is often quoted, actually existed. Or even Julius Caesar. There, there are questions about the existence of Julius Caesar, one of the most famous people who has ever lived. And the reason there are questions is because there's just not very much documentation. There, there's not very much written about them contemporaneous to the time in which they lived. So it's possible that legend could have grown up and kind of created some of these figures in the popular imagination and so on. But as it concerns Jesus, no one doubts, or I shouldn't say no one, but uh, historians, both those who believe and those who don't believe in, in terms of, of who Jesus said he was, will say that there's no question that Jesus actually existed and at the time that he existed that that we were told he existed and and that it was reported that he did all the things that are told to us in the gospels because there's plenteous documentary evidence manuscripts written uh, by people who lived at that time and not only that which ends up being in our scripture being in the new testament but but ancillary things things that pagan writers are writing for instance Pliny, uh the elder who was a pagan historian, a Roman historian, wrote somewhere within 40 years after the resurrection of Jesus that th those early Christians were singing songs to Christ as to a God. This, this is, th now people are aware that, that th the, these, these followers of Jesus are declaring that he's God and so on. And these aren't people who are trying to make a case one way or another. These are just people reporting on what was going on and creating a history of their times. So the historicity of Jesus, the events of the gospel are established by multiple sources. And, and then one other thing I'll say about this, which is a point that I've made recently. The only logical explanation for the explosive growth of Christianity is that the events recorded in the gospels actually happen. 
It's the only thing that makes sense. How do 120 people waiting for the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost grow to a group of some 30 million people by the 4th century? How does this happen? And you remember the population of the world was much, 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 much smaller then than it is now. It, 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 at that time, if I remember correctly, this represented about 10% of the people in the world have now become followers of Jesus. Um, and um, that's, a, that's something I'm pulling out of my memory. You might, before you repeat that, you might want to check that out. But if I remember correctly, that represented about 10% of the population of the world by the 4th century. How did this happen? It, this, the, the faith in Jesus began among people who were eyewitnesses to the story, who knew that it really had happened, who knew he died, who knew he'd been, who, that he had been buried, who knew he'd been raised from the dead, who saw him raised from the dead. This was how Christianity started. And, and, and so let's say when Emperor Constantine in, if I remember correctly, like 312 AD, when Emperor Constantine confesses his faith in Jesus and then probably sadly, in fact, makes Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, Constantine was joining the winning team. He wasn't joining up with the losers. He was joining up with the winners. Christianity was taking over the world. Why? Because of eyewitnesses who witnessed to what Jesus, who he was, and what he had done, and what he asked people to do. Now let me just follow up on this with one other thing. The Gospels testify, and Jesus testifies, that Jesus wasn't his Lord and God who, who came to save the world and each of us. This is what the Gospels, which are accurate, tell us. And um, Several years ago, I was just reading in my devotional time through the Gospel of John, and I just started making notes, just kind of in chronological order, of times that the deity of Jesus is mentioned. You know, uh, we believe that Jesus was 100% God and 100% human, and uh, it's important not to de-emphasize either part of who he is, but today let's emphasize his, his deity, that he was more than just a man. Uh, and I was just noting as I'm reading the Gospel of John, just checking off places where this happens, beginning with what John said. John said, I mean, this is, you know, he's saying this about a friend. He's saying this about somebody he spent a lot of time with. Uh, this is quite a claim to make about someone, you know, who heretofore had been your teacher. John, as he's getting ready to tell the story of Jesus, writes this. He begins John like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. John says, I'm about to tell you the story of how the God of the universe, the creator of the universe, became a man and lived among us. I'm going to tell you what He did, what He said, what happened to him, how he happened to us. This is how he starts. It's quite a claim to make about a contemporary. And then you see the witness of Jesus. What did Jesus say about himself? You know, there are people who say, you know, Jesus didn't really intend to be considered God. Well, let's see what he said. Let's see. Again, in no particular order, except this is as it showed up as I read through John. I'm going to be really quick here. So John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus prophesied his own resurrection. Jesus answered them, 
destroy this temple, he's talking about his body in the larger context, and I will raise it again in three days. He prophesies his own resurrection. He prophesied his crucifixion and said that faith in him would bring eternal life. John 3, 14, the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Jesus is saying that faith in him will bring eternal life. He called himself the Messiah who came to save the world. John 4, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. This is the famous woman at the well. The woman said, I know that that Messiah called Christ is coming. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Jesus said, I am the Messiah. In another place, John chapter 10, the Jews who were there gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. And because of what he said himself, his enemies tried to kill him. Why did the religious leaders try to kill him? Because he was making claims about himself that, if not true, were abhorrent. Um, John chapter 5, verse 18, for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. He was even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. He called himself the bread of life and equated the fact that he was the bread of life with with the idea that through faith in him, people would receive eternal life. What did he say? John 6, I am the bread of life. Everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. He called himself the light of the world. Can you imagine someone making claims of themselves like this? He called himself the light of the world. John 8, I am the light of the world. He said that people must believe in him or that they would die in their sins. John 8, if you do not believe I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. John 11, Jesus said to her, her being Martha, I am the resurrection of the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus said that before Abraham he was, it drove the seed of Abraham crazy. Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, John 8, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus said that if you saw him, you saw God the Father. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, John 14, 9. Jesus called himself the truth. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Okay, now I'm going to take a breath. And make a simple point. I've made it before, but it seems like the point I should make now. These are not the claims of a great moral teacher if they are not true. Right? You remember something famous that C.S. Lewis wrote? He said, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, which is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. Okay, so here's the deal, guys. This is going to shock you, probably especially this morning. This kind of sleepy May morning. This is going to shock you, but there are people who think I'm a good teacher. Now get over just get you have to you have to kind of compute for a minute and say there are there are. In fact, my mother thinks I am a great teacher. 
My mother thinks that next to Jesus, I am the greatest teacher who ever lived. That's what my mother thinks. I try to get her to tell my wife that. That's what my mom thinks. Uh, And there are people who think that I'm a good man. Not a perfect man. I think people have enough sense to know that. But fundamentally, a good man. All right? Now. Would it be true that I'm a good teacher and a good man if I stood here and said to you, I am the light of the world? Would I be a good teacher and a good man if I said, I am the bread of life? Would I be a good teacher and a good man if I said, if you don't believe in me, you're going to die in your sins? Would I be a good teacher and a good man if someone here made the terrible mistake of trying to worship me and I accepted it? Because Jesus did. People worshipped him, and he accepted their worship. Would I be a good teacher and a good man if I stood here and said, hey, listen, here's my talk today. I want you to pray to the Father in my name. And whatever you, what, what would happen? About that far, the place would empty out. Somebody would stop, whisper in Sharon's ear. We know the psych- psychiatric hospital. We will help you get him there. Right? Because y- you would say... Every one of you would say, this man is crazy. He's out of his mind. He didn't just lose his hair. He lost everything else inside the head. Right? Because I wouldn't... So you can't say Jesus was just a good man. Jesus was a great moral teacher. If what he said about himself in the record of the Gospels, which come to us with all kind of reason to accept what it says as true, if he said these things about himself and they aren't true, well then, he's not a good man. We should be off someplace on this beautiful May morning doing something else rather than sitting here in this room. Because this would all be futile. This would all be, this would be, Christianity is ridiculous if the message is not true. But see, his followers who spent time with him and who saw him crucified and saw him raised from the dead, they knew it was true and they wrote down what they knew to be true and they, they based their lives on what he said to be true. When Peter stood on the day of Pentecost and spoke to that first 120 people, which now the Holy Spirit had come and a huge crowds gathered evidently outside the temple, and Peter stood on these steps. And if you visit Jerusalem, you, you, you can still walk on today, stood on these steps and started preaching this message. He said, people of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did, which God did among you through him. And then he looks at all those people, and he says, as you yourselves know. How do they know? They've, they've been watching the news. They've been reading the papers. They, they've been talking to people who saw it all happen. And then this is how Christianity begins then. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Who became the first believers? People who knew what we're reading about 2,000 years later, who knew it was true. What did they believe? Well, here are some things that his followers said about him. They called him God repeatedly. They said he had the power of God. They testified that he raised the dead. 
I know if you're trying to follow the screen behind me, you're probably getting whiplash, but I'm intentionally going through this quickly. They claimed he forgave sins. They wrote that he created the universe. They declared that he sustains the universe. They preached that salvation could be found only in Jesus, to which here we are 2,000 years later. And I suggest that those of us who are faced with even just a little bit of evidence of what Jesus said about himself in the Gospels, what his followers said about him in the rest of the New Testament, I suggest that we must respond the same way Thomas did. There comes a time when faith overcomes its twin name, doubt. There comes a moment when we hear the voice of Jesus say, as he did to Thomas, stop being an unbeliever and believe. And when we say in response, I believe and you are my Lord and my God. And see, when we do this then, once we say we believe, it changes everything. It changes everything. You don't live the same way you used to live. You don't think the same way you used to think. Charles Colson wrote something beautiful when he said repentance, meaning turning from living life our way and turning to live life God's way, is replete with radical implications. For a fundamental change of mind not only turns us from the sinful past, but transforms our life plan, values, ethics, and actions as we begin to see the world through God's eyes rather than ours, this kind of transformation requires the ultimate surrender of self. When we are confronted with Jesus at some point, we have to decide whether we're going to believe or not. And when we decide that we believe, we then have to consider the implications. What does it mean that I'm a believer now? He is my Lord and my God. I'm going to do what he says. I'm going to live like he says. I'm going to read his word. I'm going to try my best to live this thing out. I'm going to try my best to really follow Jesus. Would you stand with me, please?